0: Chapter 10 of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carrie Bradfield. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter 10 The Council of Winter Fortune's Ambassador Calls. In the light of the world's attitude toward women and her duties, the nature of Carrie's mental state deserves consideration. Actions such as hers are measured by an arbitrary scale. Society possesses a conventional standard whereby it judges all things. All men should be good, all women virtuous. Wherefore, villain, hast thou failed? For all the liberal analysis of Spencer and our modern naturalistic philosophers, we have but an infantile perception of morals. There is more in the subject than mere conformity to a law of evolution it is yet deeper than conformity to things of earth alone. It is more involved than we as yet perceive. Answer, first, why the heart thrills. Explain wherefore some plaintive note goes wandering about the world, undying. Make clear the rose's subtle alchemy evolving its ruddy lamp in light and rain. In the essence of these facts lie the first principles of morals." "'Oh!' thought Drua, "'how delicious is my conquest!' "'Ah!' thought Carry with mournful misgivings, what is it I have lost? Before this world-old proposition we stand, serious, interested, confused, endeavouring to evolve the true theory of morals, the true answer to what is right. In the view of a certain stratum of society Carrie was comfortably established. In the eyes of the starveling, beaten by every wind and gusty sheet of rain, she was safe in a halcyon harbour. Drua had taken three rooms, furnished, in Ogden Place, facing Union Park on the west side. That was a little, green-carpeted breathing-spot than which to-day there is nothing more beautiful in Chicago. It afforded a vista pleasant to contemplate. The best room looked out upon the lawn of the park, now sere and brown, where a little lake lay sheltered. Over the bare limbs of the trees, which now swayed in the wintry wind, rose the steeple of the Union Park Congregational Church— and far off the towers of several others. The rooms were comfortably enough furnished. There was a good Brussels carpet on the floor, rich in dull red and lemon shades, and representing large jardiniers filled with gorgeous, impossible flowers. There was a large pier-glass mirror between the two windows. A large, soft, green, plush-covered couch occupied one corner, and several rocking-chairs were set about. Some pictures, several rugs, a few small pieces of bric-a-brac, and the tale of contents is told. In the bedroom, off the front room, was Carrie's trunk, bought by Drua, and in the wardrobe built into the wall quite an array of clothing, more than she had ever possessed before, and of very becoming designs. There was a third room for possible use as a kitchen, where Drua had Carrie established a little portable gas stove for the preparation of small lunches, oysters, Welsh rarebits, and the like, of which he was exceedingly fond, and lastly a bath. The whole place was cosy in that it was lighted by gas and heated by furnace registers possessing also a small grate set with an asbestos back a method of cheerful warming which was then first coming into use by her industry and natural love of order which now developed the place maintained an air pleasing in the extreme here then was carrie established in a pleasant fashion free of certain difficulties which most ominously confronted her laden with many new ones which were of a mental order and altogether so turned about in all of her earthly relationships, that she might well have been a new and different individual. She looked into her glass and saw a prettier Carrie than she had seen before. She looked into her mind, a mirror prepared of her own and the world's opinions, and saw a worse. Between these two images she wavered, hesitating which to believe. "'My, but you're a little beauty!' Drua was wont to exclaim to her. She would look at him with large pleased eyes you know it don't you he would continue oh i don't know she would reply feeling delight in the fact that one should think so hesitating to believe though she really did that she was vain enough to think so much of herself her conscience however was not a druid interested to praise there she heard a different voice with which she argued pleaded excused it was no just and sapient counsellor in its last analysis it was only an average little conscience a thing which represented the world, her past environment, habit, convention, in a confused way. With it the voice of the people was truly the voice of God. "'Oh, thou failure!' said the voice. "'Why?' she questioned. "'Look at those about,' came the whispered answer. "'Look at those who are good. How would they scorn to do what you have done? "'Look at the good girls. How will they draw away from such as you, when they know you have been weak?' you had not tried before you failed it was when carrie was alone looking out across the park that she would be listening to this it would come infrequently when something else did not interfere when the pleasant side was not too apparent when drua was not there it was somewhat clear in utterance at first but never wholly convincing there was always an answer always the december days threatened she was alone she was desirable she was fearful of the whistling wind the voice of want made answer for her. Once the bright days of summer pass by, a city takes on that somber garb of gray, wrapped in which it goes about its labors during the long winter. Its endless buildings look gray, its sky and its streets assume a somber hue. The scattered leafless trees and windblown dust and paper but add to the general solemnity of color. There seems to be something in the chill breezes which scurry through the long, narrow thoroughfares, productive of rueful thoughts." Not poets alone, nor artists, nor that superior order of mind which arrogates to itself all refinement feel this, but dogs and all men. These feel as much as the poet, though they have not the same power of expression. The sparrow upon the wire, the cat in the doorway, the dray-horse tugging his weary load, feel the long keen breaths of winter. It strikes to the heart of all life, animate and inanimate if it were not for the artificial fires of merriment, the rush of profit-seeking trade, and pleasure-selling amusements, if the various merchants failed to make the customary display within and without their establishments, if our streets were not strung with signs of gorgeous hues and thronged with hurrying purchasers, we would quickly discover how firmly the chill hand of winter lays upon the heart, how dispiriting are the days during which the sun withholds a portion of our allowance of light and warmth. We are more dependent upon these things than is often thought. We are insects produced by heat, and pass without it. In the drag of such a grey day the secret voice would reassert itself, feebly and more feebly. Such mental conflict was not always uppermost. Carrie was not by any means a gloomy soul. More, she had not the mind to get firm hold upon a definite truth. When she could not find her way out of the labyrinth of ill logic which thought upon the subject created, she would turn away entirely. Druitt, all the time, was conducting himself in a model way for one of his sort. He took her about a great deal, spent money upon her, and when he travelled took her with him. There were times when she would be alone for two or three days, while he made the shorter circuits of his business, but, as a rule, she saw a great deal of him. "'Say, Carrie," he said one morning, shortly after they had so established themselves, "'I've invited my friend Hurstwood to come out some day and spend the evening with us.' "'Who is he?' asked Carrie doubtfully." Oh, he's a nice man. He's manager of Fitzgerald De Moys. What's that? Said Carrie. The finest resort in town. It's a way up swell place. Carrie puzzled a moment. She was wondering what Drua had told him, what her attitude would be. That's all right," said Drua, feeling her thought. He doesn't know anything. You are Mrs. Drua now. There was something about this which struck Carrie as slightly inconsiderate. She could see that Drua did not have the keenest sensibilities. "'Why don't we get married?' she inquired, thinking of the voluble promises he had made. "'Well, we will,' he said, just as soon as I get this little deal of mine closed up. He was referring to some property which he said he had, and which required so much attention, adjustment, and what not, that somehow or other it interfered with his free moral personal actions. "'Just as soon as I get back from my Denver trip in January, we'll do it.' Carrie accepted this as basis for hope— It was a sort of salve to her conscience a pleasant way out under the circumstances things would be righted her actions would be justified she really was not enamoured of Drua. she was more clever than he in a dim way she was beginning to see where he lacked if it had not been for this if she had not been able to measure and judge him in a way she would have been worse off than she was she would have adored him she would have been utterly wretched in her fear of not gaining his affection of losing his interest of being swept away and left without an anchorage. As it was, she wavered a little, slightly anxious, at first, to gain him completely. But later, feeling at ease and waiting, she was not exactly sure what she thought of him, what she wanted to do. When Hurstwood called, she met a man who was more clever than Drew in a hundred ways. He paid that peculiar deference to women which every member of the sex appreciates. He was not overawed, he was not overbold. His great charm was attentiveness. Schooled in winning those birds of a fine feather among his own sex, the merchants and professionals who visited his resort, he could use even greater tact when endeavouring to prove agreeable to some one who charmed him. In a pretty woman of any refinement of feeling whatsoever, he found his greatest incentive. He was mild, placid, assured, giving the impression that he wished to be of service only, to do something which would make the lady more pleased." Druah had ability in this line himself, when the game was worth the candle, but he was too much the egotist to reach the polish which Hurstwood possessed. He was too buoyant, too full of ruddy life, too assured. He succeeded with many who were not quite schooled in the art of love. He failed dismally where the woman was slightly experienced and possessed innate refinement. In the case of Carrie, he found a woman who was all of the latter, but none of the former— he was lucky in the fact that opportunity tumbled into his lap, as it were. A few years later, with a little more experience, the slightest tide of success, and he had not been able to approach Carrie at all. "'You ought to have a piano here, Drua,' said Hurstwood, smiling at Carrie on the evening in question, so that your wife could play. Drua had not thought of that. "'So we ought,' he observed readily. "'Oh, I don't play,' ventured Carrie. "'It isn't very difficult,' returned Hurstwood. You could do very well in a few weeks." He was in the best form for entertaining this evening. His clothes were particularly new and rich in appearance. The coat lapel stood out with that medium stiffness which excellent cloth possesses. The vest was of a rich scotch plaid set with a double row of round mother-of-pearl buttons. His cravat was a shiny combination of silken threads, not loud, not inconspicuous. What he wore did not strike the eye so forcibly as that which Drua had on, but Carrie could see the elegance of the material. Hurstwood's shoes were of soft black calf, polished only to a dull shine. Drua wore patent leather, but Carrie could not help feeling that there was a distinction in favor of the soft leather, where all else was so rich. She noticed these things almost unconsciously. They were things which would naturally flow from the situation. She was used to Drua's appearance. "'Suppose we have a little game of euchre,' suggested Hurstwood, after a light round of conversation. He was rather dexterous in avoiding everything that would suggest he knew anything of Carrie's past. He kept away from personalities altogether, and confined himself to those things which did not concern individuals at all. By his manner he put Carrie at her ease, and by his deference and pleasantries he amused her. He pretended to be seriously interested in all she said. "'I don't know how to play,' said Carrie.' "'Charlie, you are neglecting a part of your duty,' he observed to Drua most affably. "'Between us, though,' he went on, "'we can show you.'" By his tact he made Drew feel that he admired his choice. There was something in his manner that showed he was pleased to be there. Drew felt really closer to him than ever before. It gave him more respect for Carrie. Her appearance came into a new light under Hurstwood's appreciation. The situation livened considerably. "'Now let me see,' said Hurstwood, "'looking over Carrie's shoulder deferentially. "'What have you?' "'He studied for a moment. "'That's rather good,' he said. "'You're lucky. "'Now I'll show you how to trounce your husband. "'You take my advice.' "'Here,' said Drua, "'if you two are going to scheme together, "'I won't stand a ghost of a show. "'Hurstwood's a regular sharp.' "'No, it's your wife. "'She brings me luck. "'Why shouldn't she win?' "'Carrie looked gratefully at Hurstwood "'and smiled at Drua. "'The former took the air of a mere friend.' He was simply there to enjoy himself. Anything that Carrie did was pleasing to him, nothing more. There, he said, holding back one of his own good cards and giving Carrie a chance to take a trick, I count that clever playing for a beginner. The latter laughed gleefully as she saw the hand coming her way. It was as if she were invincible when Hurstwood helped her. He did not look at her often. When he did it was with a mild light in his eye. Not a shade was there of anything save geniality and kindness. He took back the shifty, clever gleam, and replaced it with one of innocence. Carrie could not guess but that it was pleasure with him in the immediate thing. She felt that he considered she was doing a great deal. "'It is unfair to let such playing go without earning something,' he said after a time, slipping his finger into the little coin-pocket of his coat. "'Let's play for dimes.' "'All right,' said Drua, fishing for bills. Hurstwood was quicker. His fingers were full of new ten-cent pieces. "'Here we are,' he said, supplying each one with a little stack. "'Oh, this is gambling,' smiled Carey. "'It's bad.' "'No,' said Drua. "'only fun. "'If you never play for more than that, you will go to heaven.' "'Don't you moralize,' said Hurstwood to Carey gently, "'until you see what becomes of the money.' Drua smiled. "'If your husband gets them, he'll tell you how bad it is.' Drua laughed loud. There was such an ingratiating tone about Hurstwood's voice The insinuation was so perceptible that even Carrie got the humour of it. "'When do you leave?' said Hurstwood to Drua. "'On Wednesday,' he replied. "'It's rather hard to have your husband running about like that, isn't it?' said Hurstwood, addressing Carrie. "'She's going along with me this time,' said Drua. "'You must both go with me to the theatre before you go.' "'Certainly,' said Drua. "'Uh, Carrie?' "'I'd like it ever so much,' she replied. Hurstwood did his best to see that Carrie won the money— He rejoiced in her success, kept counting her winnings, and finally gathered and put them in her extended hand. They spread a little lunch, at which he served the wine, and afterwards he used fine tact in going. Now, he said, addressing first Carrie and then Drua with his eyes, you must be ready at seven-thirty. I'll come and get you. They went with him to the door, and there was his cab waiting, its red lamps gleaming cheerfully in the shadow. Now, he observed to Drua, with a tone of good fellowship. When you leave your wife alone, you must let me show her around a little. It will break up her loneliness.' "'Sure,' said Drua, quite pleased at the attention shown. "'You're so kind,' observed Carrie. "'Not at all,' said Hurstwood. "'I would want your husband to do as much for me.' He smiled and went lightly away. Carrie was thoroughly impressed. She had never come in contact with such grace. As for Drua, he was equally pleased. "'There's a nice man,' He remarked to Carrie as they returned to their cozy chamber. A good friend of mine, too. He seems to be, said Carrie. End of chapter 10. Recording by Carrie Bradfield, St. Louis, Missouri.